guys this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building. As I say, I believe every single week. Uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I am the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of uh, standing on this stage and opening up the Bible and unpacking the scriptures with God's people as we gather in this place, along with those exploring the truth claims of Christianity. Um, that is uh, the exercise that we will dive into in just a moment. But before we do, uh, just one announcement. I was asked a couple of weeks ago, for those of you who were around uh, two Sundays ago, you may rem remember the uh, warp speed tour of the promises of the Old Testament that find their yes in Jesus. I believe that was the uh, sermon with like a hundred slides attached to it. Um, and I got asked by numerous people coming out of that Sunday, is there a way to get the uh, sermon slides? Can we get access to those? And the answer is yes. We um, not too long ago in the rearview mirror, uh, began to make those available online along with the sermon podcast, the audio. Um, and so if you're interested in those on any given week, the quotes, the uh, scripture references, you can go to the podcast and uh, there's a little icon of a notebook, I believe. And if you click on that, it'll give you a PDF of everything that you see up on the screen behind me uh, each and every Sunday for whatever that's worth. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, uh, we recently launched into the new year with a new sermon series, one that's going to carry us throughout the course of the spring, a study of the book of 2 Corinthians, a book that has forever changed my life personally. I'll uh, attempt to shed some light on that a week from now as we dive into one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, arguably the most emotional of Paul's letters, as Paul will even come across as seemingly erratic at times. By the time we get to the end of this series, you'll see exactly what I mean if you don't already know what I mean. It's a book filled with paradox as Paul talks about comfort in affliction, strength made perfect in weakness, richness in poverty. It's a book that speaks to our struggles with present uncertainty as Paul glories in God's trustworthiness and the certainty of our future in Jesus Christ. It's a book that speaks to our propensity to hide our weaknesses and struggles as Paul helps us to see that God's perfect uh, power is in fact made perfect in weakness, that we should boast in our weaknesses all the more. It's a book that speaks to the honor and privilege that we've been given as ambassadors for Christ entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation that's found in Jesus. It's a book that speaks to the, the beauty of radical generosity, particularly the kind of generosity fueled by God's radical generosity toward us in Jesus. If you haven't experienced it yet, I would say this, get ready to have your eyes open and your heart awaken to the beauty and indispensability of the gospel as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning. With that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to uh, 2 Corinthians 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, as I also say each and every week, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. You can have that Bible if you don't own a Bible or the one you do happen to own is a little difficult to track with in terms of translation. Let's pray and we'll go ahead and dive in because we've got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. God, thank you for not only this book of the Bible, but this chapter of this book of the Bible, which I think has the, the power to transform our understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, our understanding of the doctrine of the church, 
our understanding of what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves. There's so much at stake in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, you would open our hearts to receive that which is there for us, that, that we would walk away, perhaps some of us, with a completely different paradigm as it pertains to our understanding of what it means to be conformed to the image of your son, Father, and how that happens. We're desperate for you, Spirit of God. I'm desperate for you, most certainly. I pray that you would move in power. Pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach this morning. I pray that as your very word tells us that our time together in the scriptures would not return void but would be profitable to us. Move mightily in power this morning. We invite you to do so. In the name of the mighty risen Savior and King Jesus, I pray. Amen. So just to make sure right off the go that we're all caught up to speed as it pertains to where we are in this storyline of the Corinthian church as we dive in this morning, uh, Corinth is the city where the Apostle Paul essentially set up shop right next door to the Jewish synagogue in town and proceeded to lead the head rabbi to Jesus along with his entire family because that's what the gospel does. It's the city where Paul spent roughly two years evangelizing unbelievers and discipling new Christians. We're talking about a church that undeniably had its fair share of issues. Look no further than 1 Corinthians where we see the absolute chaos, uh, the, the train wreck known as the Church of Corinth. As we dive into this morning's passage, roughly a year's gone by since Paul's penning of that letter, a year in which many have come to question the credibility of the Apostle Paul on the basis of the, the numerous sufferings that Paul has experienced as they correlate his circumstances to perhaps a lack of faith or perhaps a, a lack of um, God's endorsement upon him and his ministry so that part of the purpose of Paul's writing is to address the naysayers in defense of his apostolic authority as a minister of the gospel. We see that as we pick up in verse one of chapter three where Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some do letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul begins chapter three by throwing out a couple of rhetorical questions meant to challenge those in Corinth who are questioning his credibility. He asked, do, do I need some sort of endorsement as a minister of the gospel? Do you really need an ordination certificate or a resume? How about this, Paul says, how about the Spirit's work in your lives? How's that for an endorsement? The transforming work of the gospel in your life is certificate enough, affirmation of the apostolic authority given to me by God. He goes on to say in verse three, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Notice the, the contrast that Paul makes here, and he's gonna tease this out further as we continue through this chapter. He says, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What is, what is Paul doing here? He's contrasting the old covenant with the new, right? The, the covenant established 
with Moses at Mount Sinai and the covenant established in Jesus's blood. He says in verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, Paul says. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Going back to the earliest chapters of the Bible, if you've been around for very long with our church, you you know this storyline. We're told that God called Abraham and promised to make Abraham into a nation that would bring blessing to all other nations. We know as the story goes that Abraham's descendants increased in number and ended up enslaved in Egypt for the better part of 400 years, after which and out of which God rescued his people in what's known as the story of the Exodus leading his people out of Egypt through the desert to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God declared that he was going to make this liberated people into his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, showing his character to all the nations of the earth, if only they would obey his voice and keep his covenant. What were the terms of that covenant? The covenant stipulations? The answer is the law of Moses, the written code pronouncing a death sentence, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The post-Exodus wilderness wandering generation of Israel failed to live up to her end of the bargain, as Scripture tells us, that the people uh, were hardened in their hearts in rebellion and died in the desert. The old covenant couldn't make good on its promises because of the covenant-breaking nature of human hearts. The law can show us that we need saving, but the law cannot save us. I've used this illustration over and over again. If, if you look into a mirror, you're standing in your bathroom, you can see that your face is dirty by way of that mirror. It's a tool meant to help you see the, the nature of where you stand in terms of your cleanliness. But no one would be foolish enough to then assume that the mirror is meant to cleanse us, to take it off the wall and then to scrub our dirty faces with that mirror. We're meant to look into the mirror and for the mirror to drive us to the water in the sink below to clean ourselves up. In that regard, the law is the mirror. Shows us that we need cleansing, but it cannot cleanse us. We cannot take the law and attempt to merit the favor of God with it. We cannot take the commands of scripture and attempt to bring ourselves into right standing with God on the basis of those commands. To use that illustration, Jesus is the water. He's the one who cleanses us from sin and makes us pure before God, establishing a new covenant in his blood. As Paul says in the prequel, 1 Corinthians 11, picking up in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As a side note, that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper each and every week in this place, because Paul tells us that as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death i.e. we proclaim the gospel. It's a visual proclamation of the gospel, and so as often as we can, we want to participate in that visual proclamation of the gospel. That 
Jesus, we talk about this all the time around here too, lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live, having come to fulfill the law by keeping all of its commands. He's the lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness is credited to sinners like you and me by faith. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith. The spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners so that in Christ, the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. So that one thing we could say this morning is thanks be to God for sending his son to die in the place of covenant-breaking rebels like you and me. And with his mercy and forgiveness, all of the benefits of the new covenant are ours. Jeremiah 31, famous passage of scripture Verses 33 and 34, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's what Paul's alluding to in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The embedding of God's will deep within the hearts of his people by his spirit in the context of a restored relationship with him. Obedience no longer an obligation, but a joy. No longer a duty, but a delight. Birthed out of this astonishment that he would move toward us at all by his grace. So that the, the famous saying continues on. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Right? The gospel's the red bull of the Christian life. <laughs> For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul understands the transformed hearts and lives of those in Corinth to be a confirmation that the new covenant is being established through his ministry. He goes on to say in verse seven, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? Paul's referencing Exodus 34 here, which tells of Moses coming down with Mount, uh, from Mount Sinai with the tablets of the law, the skin on his face shining so brightly from having met with God that the Israelites were afraid to come near him. Paul says, if that's the kind of radiance and glory associated with the old covenant, how much more radiance and glory must be associated with the new covenant established in Jesus' very blood? The covenant by which God writes his will on our hearts so that we might fulfill it as we walk by the Spirit. He says in verse nine, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness was far exceeded in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul says that the old covenant under Moses brought with it a ministry of condemnation in condemning law-breaking sinners. The written code, again, pronouncing a death sentence. The new covenant established in Jesus' blood brings with it a ministry of righteousness, 
both righteous standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ and the righteousness empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit we've been given as a benefit of the new covenant. It's not to say that the radiance of Moses' face and having met with God is not a big deal. It's a huge deal. Paul says the Mosaic covenant came with an astonishing glory. Oh, the glory that must be associated with the new and permanent covenant established in Jesus Christ. That the author of Hebrews says Jesus is God's final revelation, the radiance of God's glory. He's the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty so that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the very glory of God. That similar to how we know the sun by virtue of its light and heat, we know, we know the glory of God by virtue of Jesus' embodiment and radiance of that very glory. His ministry, it's a ministry of permanence. He's the permanent prophet, priest, and king, to use the language of those Old Testament offices. He's the prophet by whom God has spoken his final word, permanence. He's the priest who has offered the once-for-all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin, permanence. And he's the king whose kingdom shall never end. Permanence, Jesus is glorious. Verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses' veiling of his face as a mediator of God's glory was, was an act of both mercy on the one hand and judgment on the other. There was a both and there. The unveiled glory of God mediated by Moses would have consumed the Israelites in the midst of their hard-hearted, covenant-breaking rebelliousness so that the veiling of Moses' face on the one hand was an act of mercy protecting them from destruction. But it was also, at the same time, an act of judgment as they weren't able to behold the glory of God. A beholding that Paul will go on to say in this morning's passage has the power to transform us so that not only were they protected from destruction, but they were prevented from transformation. Paul says, not so with the ministry of the Spirit in putting before people the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which filled Paul with this boldness and, and hope in his proclamation of the gospel, the kind of boldness and hope that we should have as we proclaim Jesus to those around us, both Christian and non-Christian alike. And yet... He goes on to say in verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. It is the veil covering Moses' face kept the Israelites from seeing God's glory in his day. So there remained a veil over the hearts of the Israelites in Paul's day. That in the midst of the weekly Sabbath readings of Moses, hearts remained veiled in tracing those words to Jesus in worship, failing to embrace that, that the great Moses is but a shadow of which Jesus is the glorious reality. Paul says only through Jesus is the veil taken away. He says it explicitly in verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That as Moses was able to enter into God's presence and meet with God without a veil, so we, 
in turning to Jesus in faith are brought into the very presence of God. We talked about this a lot in our study of the book of Hebrews, the veil of separation removed, like the veil of the temple that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified. True intimate access to the living God so that we can approach his throne with boldness, with confidence, his throne of grace. The veil of blindness removed, eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you've experienced that miracle, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Miracle of miracles. If we do nothing but walk away and go, wonder of wonders. If you're not a Christian, my prayer is simple. Verse 16 is that you would turn to the Lord, as Paul says. You would know the joy and the lifting of the veil, the joy of seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. We're gonna get so much deeper into that a week from now. If, if that language doesn't make a whole lot of sense, seeing and savoring Jesus. Verse 17, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. There's a parallel between Moses' experience of the Lord under the old covenant and our experience of the Spirit under the new covenant. The Spirit who sets us free. Right? Maybe you've seen verse 17 on a coffee cup somewhere along the way. Maybe you have it framed on a wall somewhere. Maybe your grandmother does, I don't know. But let me tell you what doesn't make it onto a coffee cup. A coffee cup is not big enough to say that when we read where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What that means is that there's freedom from guilt and rejection. There's freedom from shame and defilement. There's freedom from wrath and condemnation. We're free from sin's dominion. We're free from Satan's grip. We're freed from the sting of death. We're free to confidently draw near to that throne of grace. We're free to behold the glory of God. We're free to know the transforming power of the Spirit in our very lives. We're free to bend our knee in glad submission to the praise of God's glorious grace. If you can fit all of that on a coffee mug, I'll buy it. Verse 18, Paul closes chapter three with one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. As Paul will go on to say, in chapter four, we'll get there next week, the glory of God is most surely seen in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. For those of you who weren't around for our study of the book of Hebrews a couple years back, one of the overused illustrations that I used during that series as a way of making sense of what Paul's talking about in this very passage. For those of you thinking, oh my gosh, is he about to talk about his daughter in the moon again? Yeah, <laughs> You thought you were done with it in the words of the Apostle Paul? By no means. <laughs> if you weren't around during the Hebrew series to try to make sense of what the author of Hebrews is really getting after as the thesis statement of, of the whole book, I would argue. A couple years back, our oldest daughter had just turned three. Her name's Lanier, like the lake. Um, and we were down in the Gulf. We were walking down the beach on a Wednesday night. This was halfway through our family vacation, and uh, we, we may have made it like 
three or four minutes into this walk, and all of a sudden, my daughter starts screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, it's the moon, look, Daddy. I look up in the sky, and sure enough, it, it's the moon. It's usually there, you know, but for her, she had never seen the moon in, in anything other than a book on a TV screen. All of a sudden, she's looking into the sky, and she's seeing that the moon hanging there in the cosmos, and it blows her, her mind. And we went home, we talked about that, my wife and I, that was cool. Like, that was neat to see, one of those um, God-given parent moments. We woke up the next day on Thursday. We went through our family vacation routine as always. Evening came, we decided to go for another walk, and she did it all over again. Daddy, look, Daddy, it's the moon, it's the moon. I'm like, I know, baby, we, we did that yesterday. And, and she looked at me as if to say, but it's not yesterday. Welcome to the Christian life. That to become a Christian is to do what my daughter did on that first night on the beach together. To persevere as a Christian is to do what my daughter did on the second and third and fourth nights on that same beach. That the Christian life, Paul says it here so explicitly, is a life of beholding the glory of the Lord. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in all of his beauty and all of his splendor, knowing that our beholding is the very catalyst for our transformation. In the words of one scholar, willing exposure to the sunlight of God's presence will burn his image ever deeper into our character and will. But make no mistake about it, our transforming is in direct correlation to our beholding. So that you could say it this way, without beholding, there is no becoming. Without seeing and savoring, there is no sanctification. That fixing our eyes on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is transformative, which is why I'm so bound and determined as a pastor to keep putting in front of us this supremely valuable son of God. If, if you tire of it, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna stop doing it. There are people within Christian evangelicalism that are so focused on becoming at the absence of beholding and they're missing it. We should never stop declaring, not just in contexts like these as we assemble formally, but as we scatter, as we go about our days, our weeks, we should never stop declaring to one another nor should we stop declaring to our very own hearts, which is what I mean by preaching the gospel to ourselves, that Jesus is glorious. Look at himself. Look at him, brother or sister in Christ. Look at him, person who has yet to come to, to know and love this Jesus that I love. Isn't he glorious? As the author of Hebrews says so eloquently in chapter one, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the pre-existent creator of all things, the one who upholds the universe, including that moon that my daughter basked in by the word of his power. He's the one who made purification for sins through the shedding of his blood. He's the one who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the rightful heir to all things, God's ultimate and final message to mankind. He's greater than the angels, greater than Moses. He's the perfect and final sacrifice for sin. He's the exalted high priest of heaven who intercedes for you. 
He's the great shepherd of the sheep whose blood has established an eternal covenant. Never, never stop seeing and savoring him, church. Behold him today, and then when you wake up tomorrow, do it again. And when you wake up the next day, do it again, and just keep beholding him until you die or he returns. And watch as God transforms you radically by the power of his indwelling spirit into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In a moment, we're gonna continue to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Get to stare at and sing lyrics that declare of his supremacy, his worth, his excellencies together with our collective voice, worshiping him, basking in in who he is and what he's accomplished, what he will accomplish for us when all is said and done, for his glory, for our joy. We get to come and receive of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Invite you to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, that it was that broken body and shed blood by which the new covenant was established. Everything that Paul's talking about here through Jesus Christ. Pause for a moment and think about the wonder of the fact that you can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that you have eyes to to see and savor him because of what he accomplished at Mount Calvary as you come and receive the elements this morning.